minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. For the first time since last December, we are coming at you live in the Masson Web Studio. Welcome into the Masson All Access Podcast, everybody. Bobby Blanco here. Amy Jennings right next to me in person for the first time in seven months. Thanks so much for tuning in, making us a part of your Thursday afternoon. Hopefully you're joining us live on the Masson Nationals YouTube page, Facebook page, or on Twitter. And if not, you're catching the podcast after the fact on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or SoundCloud. Amy. We can we high five. So back. We can die. <laughs> We're not it's, talking through a screen. I know. Or I'm a not, camera. I didn't have to get into Zoom. You didn't have to send me a Zoom link today. We are back in an action in person. A little less than six feet, but we're fully vaccinated, and this is so exciting, and I, I'm so excited to be back. Excuse studio. us if we're a little too overexcited. No, you're fine. Screaming, I like the energy. So. <laughs> you came in great. You were singing when you walked in today. Amy Jennings is having herself a day, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. I was singing. I have found this little country song. It's a little bit old, um, but it just really lifted my spirits this morning, so I'm going to sing it for Bobby after the podcast to try to lift his spirits, too. Um, maybe Brendan Mortensen and Paul Mancano also. Well, yeah, we want to give a shout out to Brendan Morrison, who is back in person running the show behind the scenes, and also Paul Mancano, our uh, cousins from the Orioles side of the Mass and All Access podcast. They're doing great work behind the scenes as well. So thanks to them for coming in on their supposedly day off. Amy, Paul made a joke on our Slack channel the other day because, you know, the players, the Nationals players and the Orioles players, of course, and everyone in baseball get to have this time off and relax. And we don't have such luxury. We have been working every single day for the past week plus uh, getting ready for the draft, covering the draft getting ready for the All-Star game, covering the All-Star game, and now here we are on our supposedly All-Star break still doing a live show. It's their only week off for the whole entire season, and it seems like it's our busiest week of the whole entire season. So I guess it's a fair trade-off. The work that they do is much more physically demanding than what we do, so we'll suck it up. It's a fun and exciting week, and that means we have a full podcast today. Yeah, Yeah, I guess I shouldn't – I mean, I'm not complaining, right? I I I love our job. Love our job, but typically (laughs) the draft is not during the – all-star break it's typically in the beginning of june so we have they're kind of separate events uh the all-star game obviously was not here when it was in dc that was a very busy week as well uh it was just would have been nice to have a more complete Mm -hmm. all-star break but i digress and we can move on and chat because we do have a lot to talk about we have a like i said a full draft to recap uh, uh, an extended draft when we saw last year the nationals picked the highest that they have ever picked since anthony rendon uh, back in 2011 um, and then of course the nationals were all over the all-star game festivities juan soto in the home run derby max scherzer started the game uh trey and trey turner and juan both played in the game uh so we've got a lot to get to kind of recap this last three or four days uh, without actual baseball game, like a real game, uh, but we still have lots of news to talk about. So, Amy, let's start with the draft. Of course, you hosted our live Mass and All Access show on Monday afternoon after the Nationals selected Brady House at number 11 overall. I joined you for that right here in the studio. Um, you know, you asked for my initial reaction. What was your initial reaction to the Nationals taking a position player at number 11 instead of a pitcher? I was so surprised. I mean, obviously, it's the first time they've done that since Carter Keyboom in 2016. Um, I think everybody expected them to take a pitcher. 
especially a right-handed pitcher where there are a lot on the board. I had high ties to Ty Madden. That's who I think everybody kind of expected there at number 11, but they went with the position player. And, you know, you, you typically can't go wrong when you take the best player available. And they were really high on Brady House um, all along. So it kind of makes sense. It makes sense because he has those high ties. I don't know why I keep saying high ties. <laughs> we're at the beach or something. Um, but those close ties um, – to Nationals cross-checker Jimmy Gonzalez. He played for the area code team, and I think that has a big um, part to do with it because they got to get so many looks at him. They got to develop a relationship with him, see the all-around player he was, and now when you look back at his high school numbers, everything kind of adds up. Yeah, Brady House was scouted as one of the top, definitely top five, maybe even top four or three uh, prep shortstops in the country. He stands six foot four, is over 210 pounds, so a big kid. Um, And I was surprised, I guess... Maybe not so surprised that they went with a position player, but a high school player as, at that because we know Mike Rizzo loves his college. He likes guys that has college experience, and um, that brings them a little closer to the major league level. They weren't afraid to take house when he fell to 11. And like I said on the show on Monday, I, I think the draft kind of dictated that they were going to take him. You know, there were some surprises up earlier in the draft. Um, you mentioned Jimmy Gonzalez and, and Mike Rizzo, and Chris Klein said after the fact that they didn't really have that Cade Cavalli-type arm in the draft this year that they really were all about and really wanted to bring into the system. They were they felt that they were lucky that Cade Cavalli fell to them at 22 last year. They're probably feeling lucky that Brady House fell to them at 11 this year because he was projected to go in the top 10, top 8 um, a lot of mock drafts, and he fell all the way to 11. I think it would have been super interesting to see what would have happened had Kumar Rocker passed uh, or fell through the Mets. But, yeah, obviously the New York selected him at number 10 overall. But, you know, if you got the guy that was, you know, a year ago, the consensus number one overall pick, I know he struggled through his uh, uh, senior, or his, his year with Vanderbilt and the College World Series. But then you look at Brady House's numbers, I mean, that – it's high school compared to Rocker playing at, uh, you know, one of the best programs in the country in college and in the SEC. But I still think it would have been an interesting choice. And then you also look at the greater scheme of things in the Nationals farm system. You know, they need a lot of help top to bottom. They're the lowest ranked system in, in all of baseball, but they also really need position player help. There's only two or three position players in their top 10. Obviously, a team that focuses mostly on pitching. I think it was super interesting and telling that where their focus is going with a, a position player at number 11. Yeah, and I would agree with you that it's equally as surprising that they took a position player as it is that they took a high school position player um, because obviously projecting high school players is a lot more difficult and projecting high school hitters is more difficult difficult than projecting high school pitchers. I mean, you could, you know, you're in Florida, Texas, wherever you are pitching, compared to, you know, these these colder areas, a 98 mile per hour fastball is a 98 mile per hour fastball. Right. Um, but then hitters, you know, you're facing different um, pitching in Illinois and Ohio than you are down in Florida or Texas. So you kind of, they might be hitting the heck out of the ball up north and then you throw them and IMG and it's a completely different story. So that was kind of surprising to me, but I guess it was that idea of getting so many looks um, at him throughout his the course of his high school years, especially this last year, that made them so high on him. So the Nationals are typically, you know, one of the organizations that the ha- have the highest ratio of picking college players over high school players. So that was kind of surprising, and they picked uh, what four high school guys this yep. year in this draft so I think that was kind of surprising um but they went forward and they had that ability to get back to games and I think that certainly helps um you know 
you feel more um, apt to pick those high school guys. And Brady does have a, a had, I guess I should say, a commitment to the University of Tennessee to play. Uh, he said the night that he was drafted that he plans on signing with the Nationals. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet, but probably could come in the next week or so, the next couple of days. So, you know, kid obviously expected to go pretty high in the draft, had plans already, was anticipating drafted that high, and then goes to an organization like the Nationals, and he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, I'm, I'm ready, um, I, I'm good to go, and, and want to get started. And yeah, looking at the Nationals' top 10, according to MLBPipeline.com, you've got three position players, two of which are shortstops. Uh, Yasiel Altuna also plays third base, and he's at high, high A with an ETA of next year. Um, and then also Armando Cruz is only at rookie ball. Uh, his ETA is not until 2025. Amy, we got some comments on our show, or your show, I should say, on Monday, uh, asking or kind of saying, like, what does this mean for Trey Turner's future? I think this means nothing about Trey Turner's future right now. I think the Nationals obviously are going to be engaged in talks and signing him to a long-term deal. I think this has more to say about Carter Keeboom's future with the team uh, than Trey Turner. What do you think about that? Yeah, because one of two reasons is Trey Turner's contract's a little bit farther away. And obviously, Brady House is just drafted, and you know how the minor leagues work. I mean, obviously, picking at number 11, you're going to make it up to the majors at a typical higher pace than most guys. Um, but, you know, that's still years away. And I agree. I think, you know, the probability they, Chris Klein even said it, we see him long term at third base. His body, his makeup, everything puts him at third base. So I think it certainly says more about Carter Keyboom. I think they're kind of getting those wheels turning. It's kind of do or die time for Carter Keyboom. Um, and I certainly think that that has more to say about that third base position than it does Trey Turner at shortstop. Obviously, they're not drafting, I would imagine, at this point with Trey Turner's contract in mind. You pick the best player available, and they already can see him at third base, so it, it makes perfect sense him slotting in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you draft a guy this high and you immediately expect him to be one of your top prospects. It'll be interesting to see where Brady House lands when uh, the farm systems and each team's top 30 are kind of reshuffled after the draft. Uh, my guess would be probably in the top 10-ish area. I mean, if he's that kind of caliber talent. And not to mention the Nationals farm system is not highly thought of to begin with. He should be one of the better talents in that in that system. And also, Kibum and Luis Garcia have graduated, so aren't considered there. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, you look at it, we're in the middle of the season, right? We're in mid-July right now, and Carter Keeboom has only played two games at the major league level, and that was because of a COVID issue at the beginning of the season. That's the only reason he made the team. And the Nationals have called up Luis Garcia two other times uh, and chosen him chosen to bring him up as opposed to Carter Keeboom when they did need a third baseman. Remember when Starlin Castro went on the restricted list, they brought up Garcia instead of Keeboom. And I think that goes to show everything you need to know what the Nationals think of Carter Keeboom, that he is not ready that they don't want to rush him anymore. Um, I'm not saying they're giving up on him, but I, I think that they drafted Brady House with the idea of he could possibly, with, with his frame, you know, 6'4", 210, he, and, you know, still only 18 years old, he could still grow into it. He could possibly shift over and be a big third baseman for them down the line, and that is where they envision Carter Keebum to be in the future because, ideally, you would have Trey Turner uh, long-term at the shortstop position. Well, and you mentioned only being 18 years old. That's the one plus of drafting a high school guy is his position isn't necessarily set. Where you draft a college guy, he's much farther down the path at that position. Where you draft an 18-year-old, you can kind of make him what you want and move him around a little bit this early on in his career. So that's one good thing. But, you know, this front office, I think, in this draft, it's clear split down the middle between – 
position players and pitchers, they're kind of focused on drafting bats at the end of the day. You can move this guy around the infield a little bit, but they need those bats, and he certainly brings it, uh, brings that power, one of the best exit velocities in the whole draft, and I think that's what they really see from him, along obviously with his arm in the field, but you draft these bats, you kind of fill those positions in your minors that have, you know, they desperately need seven of their top ten best prospects are pitchers, so they definitely need to get some position players in there. Um, sooner rather than later. Yeah, the Nationals finished the 2021 draft with 20 selections, split evenly, 10 pitchers, 10 position players, though I think it's interesting that seven of those 10 pitchers came on the third day, so the last half of the draft, and you mentioned they emphasized on drafting position players early. You look at all the top, uh, all the position players that went in the top 10, including Darren Baker, Dusty Baker's son, uh, first baseman out of Cal Berkeley, who went when uh, finished day two at the, in the tenth round. Pretty interesting. I don't. I they drafted him back when Dusty was the manager with the Nationals, which was a cool story. He obviously went to Cal and played, but interesting that they went with him again in the tenth round. And then yeah, there are all the pitchers uh, there, and then a couple of catchers near the end. So uh, I think what's it look like? Two of the three position players they drafted after the tenth round were catchers. So mm-hmm. that's just adding catching depth. Obviously, we know that you can't have too many catchers. What with the Nationals just went through in, uh, in San Francisco to close out the first half. Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, they ended up splitting. They ended up getting the pitchers that they uh, you know, usually get. It just was flipped from previous years and that that was in the later half of the draft. Obviously, still a shortened draft than what we're used to. Only 20 rounds, but double the size that we are a little way longer than we saw last year, uh, only being five rounds. So, um, I, I, yeah, it was an interesting draft selection for Chris Klein and Mike Rizzo. I think they can go come away with it feeling pretty good. You know, some you might not see some of those names again. You know, you might see a lot of those guys – you mentioned only a couple of high schoolers. Maybe a couple of those high schoolers go end up going to college. Um, obviously, Brady House intends to sign. You, maybe you see some of those guys retire or not, or, you know, not pursue uh, a professional career. But it's still a, a good time for them, and, and the Nationals should be happy with the selection they got. I think it's pretty cool. Not cool, but like interesting that they ended up splitting, you know, even position players and, and pitchers. Right, and you can never have too many arms. I mean, obviously, you need a lot more pitchers in your organization than you need any other position. So that kind of makes sense. I think on the pitching note, what surprised me the most out of that was that they didn't select a right-handed pitcher until the ninth round. Yeah. And typically, you don't see that. You know, the Nats, like the big right-handed pitchers, they didn't take a righty um, until the ninth round. So that kind of surprised me on the pitching note. And then kind of those catchers, Obviously, you know, they, that's not a position they're still prioritizing in the draft. They're not known for developing pitcher. I mean, catchers, typically any of the catchers that you see at the big league level are guys later on in their career that they either traded for, signed, um, but they still took two later on. So trying to add that depth to the organization certainly can't hurt. And then on Dusty Baker's side, <laughs> uh, do you see those pictures? That was so awesome. It reminded me, and now, like after the All-Star game, you saw all those pictures of Vlad as a baby, yeah. and, as a young um, player and then seeing all these pictures, um, Dusty Baker, someone he was young, w- was was pretty cool to yeah. see. Yeah, of course the World's 2002 World Series, him being caught at the plate as the Giants' bat, bat boy. boy. I think th- it was also interesting. Like I said, the Nationals previously drafted him. Uh, they already had a picture of him in a Nationals cap from that previous draft, so they were kind of prepared for that, which was pretty interesting. Uh, we have obviously haven't heard from Darren. I don't think Dusty's has spoken about it yet either. I would imagine it'd be like, you know, I, it's a certain point. Yes, there might be some not great blood between the Baker family and the Nationals, obviously, for what happened. And I think we can debate another time whether or not that was the right decision or not, but whatever. But I think there is a certain level of, there's familiarity between Darren and the Nationals. You know, his father was the manager for two years. Uh, and then he was also drafted. So he's 
very familiar with the scouts, the scouting department, probably a little bit on the minor league system, some of the players, training staff, et cetera. So, you know, it made, that might have made it easier for the Nationals to take him in the 10th round being like, well, he's already pretty much knows the system, the farm, the people. So exactly. there hasn't been that much turnover uh, since his father was the manager. So, you know, it, it might be a comfortable, easy fit for him uh, as he tries to get his professional career underway. Right, yeah, comfortable, easy, easy fit. And you know what you're getting. I mean, obviously, it's a baseball family. You know how he was brought up through through baseball. So you kind of know what you're getting there. So and obviously, they've been following. I mean, drafted him out of high school. You add that onto it. He's been a guy that they've clearly followed because now they're drafting him again out of college. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. But obviously, any type of uh, previous ties to the organization is exciting, cool to follow. Yeah, Chris Klein said after the fact, because obviously after the second day, Darren was the 10th pick to end the second day of the draft, and he was asked about, you know, well, when, when it, what went into drafting Dusty's son, and they were like, he is a baseball mind through and through. You mentioned it coming, obviously, from a huge baseball family. They say he's just one of the smartest players that they've scouted this year in, in terms of how the game is played. Uh, he played mostly first base at Cal, uh, so, you know, that's not a high-leverage situation, but it's an important position on the field. Uh, you know, he's probably evolved a lot in, with, in terms of the pitching uh, and how the game is managed. So they were like the mind to go along with the player that they got in Darren Baker. So a, a fun story in that he was Dusty's son, but also see where he goes up in his own professional career. You know, we can't at some point we can't just think of him as Dusty's son anymore. We got to think of him as Darren ba Baker, the baseball player. Right. And it's arguably I don't know what is worse if your dad was is a manager, or was <laughs> a manager in the bigs or if your dad was a player and a really good player in the big leagues. Either way, you kind of have bigger shoes to fill. I guess it's a little bit more difficult if your dad was a player. Yeah. Versus a manager. Which he I was don't both. Know, but either you're right. So he, he's really in deep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess he wasn't alive, though, when Dusty was a player. All right, so kind of wrapping up on the draft talk, any final thoughts before we move on to the Bickley Club and the, and the All-Star Week festivities? No, just that it was, it was just a little bit surprising. I think they got a lot of good position players in there. I really liked their second-round pick in Dalen Lyle. Mm -hmm. um, he was supposedly one of the best bats in the whole draft out of high school, one of the most high school bats out of the draft, rather. Um, so I think that seemed like a really good fit, and they were happy that they got in with that 47th pick. Um, but, you know, anytime they can get more position players into this organization will certainly help them move up the ranks because whether they need to rebuild at some point or they're just going to try to go with this win now mindset, there's going to be some turnover. Um, so drafted pretty well overall, overall. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention that you talked about their usual tendency to draft from college, their first two picks out of high school, three of their first five picks were out of high school. So maybe, you know, that's to me a small sign that, Without them actually officially saying and acknowledging it, it's a small sign that the Nationals know that they need to get younger and better to kind of really restack and retool that farm system. Mike Rizzo will never say the word reload, but he always says retool, and I'm mm -hmm. sure that's what he's had in mind uh, when drafting these young guys in the top five and then, of course, throughout the rest of the draft. All right, moving on. Uh, into So that was Sunday through Wednesday afternoon. Let's move on into uh, Monday night, the home run derby. Juan Soto participating, the first national to participate since Bryce Harper won the thing in D.C. back in 2018. He gets matched up with Shohei Otani. In the first round, the the heavy favorite, obviously leading the majors in home runs while also being a starting pitcher. Uh, and, and Soto knocks him out. Um, and, and it took not only overtime, but then a three-swing swing-off in which Juan hit three straight home runs and uh, Otani grounded out in his first swing. Pretty impressive stuff from Juan Soto go, going up against the 
best player in baseball right now. That was one of the most exciting first rounds I have ever seen. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't necessarily get too into the home run derby mm -hmm. every year unless you have a player in it um, that you've been following. But this was one of the most exciting first rounds. And you called it Juan Soto was going to win that first round. You I, called it. I did not want to toot my own horn too much, but yes, I did. I did say that. And I said <laughs> he would lose the next round to Pete Alonso, who uh, he, Pete Alonso is just built for this competition. And I, I actually like the idea that he's going to do it every year and basically going to do it until someone knocks him off. I think that's kind of what the home run derby needs. Because mm -hmm. uh, like you said, it, it's, it's interesting. I like the way they reformatted it. Definitely in tournament style. I think that's a lot better uh, than in previous ways that they've done it before. But I think, you know, Players don't, re or there's this like negative connotation around it. Players don't like to do it. Uh, you know, you have that one night of fame and you get to say you won the home run derby, but then, you your know, possibly your swing is messed up. Right. For the second half of the season. I think what they need is kind of a dominant guy in it to kind of be like, I'm going to win this thing until someone knocks me off. And I think that's what Pete Alonso brings. Um, it was kind of cool that the, the broadcast was hyping up a Juan Soto versus Pete Alonso matchup, Nationals versus Mets, of course, in the National League East, kind of adding fuel to that rivalry maybe a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know what? I, I don't want to take anything away from Shohei Itani. He obviously got a lot of attention this week, rightful, rightfully so. He's the best player that we've seen, and he's only been doing this. He's the only player to do both hitting and pitching since Babe Ruth. But – uh, is it fair to say it was kind of an underwhelming all-star week for Shohei Itani getting knocked out in the first round and then not doing too much in the game himself? I think because there was so much hype leading up to it and you've seen what he's been able to do all season, it was definitely probably a little bit underwhelming. But just the ability to go out there, hit in the home run derby, and then turn around and start the all-star game is something that we obviously never see. So yeah. I think that that was so exciting. There was so much hype leading up to it. Obviously, his performance was a little bit underwhelming. Yeah, and I think I kind of referenced this last week when we were kind of previewing the whole thing. Like, I, I think him being a pitch, half a pitcher, you know, <laughs> Just it, half. does that make sense? You, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, also kind of puts him at a, now. yeah, two-way player, uh, puts him at a disadvantage because Juan Soto was focusing on hitting and only hitting throughout the course of the season. Shohei Itani half the time is in pitching meetings and scouting and, and, and you know, throwing bullpen sessions. So I, I think that automatically kind of put it, and he's just not, you. they even, they made a huge big deal about Shohei Itani doesn't even take batting practice because he, he, he's so busy and doesn't want to get tired. He takes all his work in the cage underneath the stadium uh, off a tee and pretty much, and, and just kind of soft tossing. So he doesn't even take batting practice. So he is, has never probably, or at least in a long time, has swung the bat that many times in a row as hard as he can, probably since he participated in that home run derby back in Japan all those years ago. Well, when we talked about it last week. Maybe he was... Juan Soto was so excited. He was the last one in. He's trying to prove himself against the home run leader. And then maybe Otani kind of, like you mentioned, has like a little less a little less into it because you know that he has to turn around and pitch the, pitch the next day and throughout the whole season. I mean, that's his main priority. He is a pitcher. He just has the ability to do both. But the fact that he can go out there and hit that many home runs, I mean, it's not like Juan Soto, you know, hit him out of the park. It was obviously <laughs> really close. Um, and it came down to those last three swings. Um, just, you know, it's just, he's so exciting to watch and I'm excited to see the second half that he has. And, and Soto also, not to mention, hit the longest home run in the Derby at 420 feet. Obviously, Coors Field helps with that, but I mean, still pretty exciting. Uh, and he, you know, did his best against Pete Alonso, but that was 
I mean, I don't think P. Alonzo broke a sweat during. He yeah. was dancing the entire time. He was just swinging. Also, I will say this though, in Juan Soto's defense, he was not getting any help from Kevin Long. No. Those pitches were all over the place. He Kevin Long almost hit him one time, <laughs> threw behind him. He looked like Fifty Cent throwing a first pitch out there. <laughs> I mean, it was at some point one of them was like, "What? What? What, what are we doing here? Like, come on!" Like one. that was what Pete Alonso was. He was getting every ball right in his sweet spot, and he was, you know, all he had to do was swing the bat. Didn't even have to hit it hard because it was going to fly in Colorado. Juan Soto had to like he was like he didn't know where the ball was going. He had to actually like like look at his pitches and kind of pick and choose. Yeah, I think Kevin Long needed to get some sticky stuff or something. But he it, Kevin Long even mentioned like he had never been asked to, to True. pitch in the home run, throw in the home run derby before. And I bet Juan like a couple after a couple of the he let those balls go. He's probably like. I kind of regret this just a little bit, maybe. <laughs> also, of course, Juan Soto picked a lefty-on-lefty lefty matchup for the home run derby. He was, like, the only one to have the same-handed pitcher throw to him. Right. like Because, of course, because he just wants to hit. Soto. Yeah, because he wants to The other thing is I want to mention before we move on to the other side of the bracket, of course, Trey Mancini making it all the way to the final, put up a good fight, not just, obviously, in the home run derby, but what he's accomplished over the past year-plus uh, with his cancer battle. Uh, what a story that was. And, you know, again, I think there's no shame in losing to Pete Alonso because that's just mm. what he's meant for. And Trey even, you know, had a really good chance to maybe even make Pete sweat a little bit. But then after he called that timeout, you could just tell it was going to be over. It's just so inspiring the year that he's had the to be in the home run derby, let alone perform so well in the home run derby. I mean, mm. he absolutely put on a show and I think it's so inspiring. Um, it's incredible to watch Trey Mancini back on the field and we wish him the best. Yeah, obviously. Very, very good story. And I like how the uh, ESPN and, and the rest of the uh, all-star game coverage kind of really gave Trey his moment in, in the spotlight because he deserves it. He is outside of Shohei Atani on the field. He, Trey Turner is, excuse me, Trey Mancini, too many Trey's. Trey Mancini is the best uh, story off the field and on the field. He's having a great season himself uh, with the Orioles. All right, moving on to the game. Max Scherzer gets the start. Of course, he once goes from being the last person named to the, or the second to last person named to the roster uh, and then is now starting the game. Dave Roberts saying that, you know, it's he, he earned that right with the season he's having and also with the Nationals and Davey Martinez not being able to have their chance uh, in the spotlight at last year's All-Star game due to the pandemic. Max getting the start was kind of a, a way to recognize that and give um, them the, the honor they deserve. He goes out, pitches a perfect first inning, I think only on 11 pitches, gets Shohei Atani to ground out on two pitches, um, almost gets beamed in the head by Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, but gets out there pretty, first and foremost, healthy, but then also cleanly uh, to start the game. I loved that quote from Max Scherzer after the game. I'm just glad that I still have one blue eye <laughs> and one brown eye after that because I was a little bit worried. Obviously, you want to make it out of the All-Star game healthy and safe, so I'm glad that happened. But a perfect first inning. What more could you want? Three up, three down. And I think, obviously, it partly has to do with the Nationals not being able to honor Davey Martinez, not being able to be honored last year. Um, but also, Max Scherzer not being on this All-Star roster was just crazy but the fact I mean he deserved to make that start but it is crazy that he went from not even being on this roster to making his fourth all-star start I think his eighth all-star appearance um so good for him couldn't have done a better job he currently leads all active pitchers with four all-star starts uh I think he's just the sixth pitcher in history to do that um and he's only one behind the all-time record which is five held by a couple of guys Randy Johnson being one of them so he's in good company in terms of his all-star game starts and he even said you know we you and I talked about it last week, you know, previewing the All-Star game, and we said that we we don't think that Max really cares that much about 
because he's not a big guy about personal accolades. He much preferred to win the game and, you know, win a World Series than, you know, be named an all-star. But he even said he's like, you know, I, I like to party. And uh, <laughs> this is just a big ass, big party, and I like to have fun. And I'm with all the best stars in baseball. And, uh, you know, he obviously had a good time and then also performed well. So, you know, I, I guess – I. I'll eat my words and say Max actually does like the All-Star game. I know. <laughs> I, that, that kind of surprised me. Max Scherzer's just such an odd dude because he, <laughs> <laughs> he's so serious and intense, especially when he's on the mound. And then he turns around and says like stuff like, I love to party, or you saw him in those World Series celebrations. Yeah. He was just like right in the mix of it all. So he just is just this well-rounded guy, I guess. Yeah. Well-rounded player, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and that's exciting to see. And then, of course, Soto and Trey Turner both in that game coming in later. Soto walked twice, which... Of course he did. Juan Soto, of course he did. And then Trey Turner um, swung at the only two p- pitches he saw grounded out both times, or ground out, grounded out and flew out. Grounded out and flew out. And uh, if you blinked, you missed his first one because Fox wasn't even back from commercial break when he was at bat to take his first at bat. Uh, he did get a put out at, at second base. It was going to be a second a double play ball but he didn't wasn't able to turn it he said after or you could hear because Ozzy Albies was mic'd up and you could hear Trey say I, I was terrified uh because he just didn't you know didn't know what to do didn't want to get hit at second didn't want to hit anybody else so he just took the out at second but yeah I mean it was unfortunate that Trey Turner won his first at bat was wasn't on television second at bat ended the game on one swing <laughs> uh but back to Juan Soto you know he his first, I think both walks loaded the bases mm-hmm. um, and, and gave the National League a chance to get back in the thing. Uh, whoever hit behind him obviously couldn't do it, but, you know, that's just Juan Soto. I mean, he hasn't, we talked about this before, he hasn't had the superstar uh, sexy power numbers that were have seen him put up in last year in 2019, but he still is doing Juan Soto things in terms of getting on base, giving his team a chance, playing solid defense. He made a couple of nice plays out in, the, in right field. After that, an NL uh, pitcher was was really struggling in the in the inning that the American League scored. I think like three or two runs. Um, so yeah, if if America doesn't know, they know now. That is Juan Soto things right. getting on base and giving his team a chance. It's obviously in the All Star game. You don't necessarily want to walk. Obviously, you don't want to make an out, but you want to you know do something exciting, right? Yeah. That's why you're in the All Star game. But Juan Soto, it just was on par for the first half that he's having. If he's not going to hit for power, not going to get an extra base hit he's going to find a way to get on mm-hmm. and he's probably going to walk and it's probably going to be a full count and he's going to do it, you know, some crazy way to draw out the at bat, but that's one soda for you and you know, better than making two outs. Yeah, I, I would agree. And um, that's pretty much, uh, obviously, unfortunately, Kyle Schwarber cannot participate in the game. He's resting his right hamstring, hopefully be back at some point during the second half, which then translates to our final topic today, Amy, kind of top storylines entering the second half of the season at, Technically gets underway tonight with the Yankees and Red Sox, but the Nationals will be back at it at Nationals Park uh, tomorrow night on Friday night against the Padres. What is the one thing you are looking forward to in the second half? What do the Nationals need to do to get back in this race? Well, I think the most important thing is getting and staying healthy. That has absolutely hurt them. It seems as soon as somebody gets going, they get hurt. Obviously, they need to get some of their pitching back. When Steven Strasburg comes back, it's going to be a huge part of that. Um, But then, of course, you know, just as they were getting hot and Kyle Schwarber led that great June that they had, he gets hurt. So it's just getting these guys back healthy, back in the lineup is going to be super important. And then, obviously, they need to show a little bit of depth. The same guys can't carry them. You know, once Kyle Schwarber got hurt, they kind of – you know, kind of fell off and lost nine of their last 11. 
Uh, so they need to show a little bit of depth, especially in that lineup, um, because Paulo Espino can only go out there and have so many great starts. Those kind <laughs> yeah. of guys can only step up for so long. It's yeah. going to strike midnight on Cinderella, and they need to show, those other guys need to show a, a little bit of depth, especially the guys at the top. Yeah, and Strasburg getting back obviously helps that. But also, you look at guys like Eric Fetty and Joe Ross in that rotation needing to also step up because of the absence of Steven Strasburg, because a lack of John Lester out there and the production that he's putting up. You know, this is not what the John Lester, the Nationals, thought they were getting. You know, we saw a pretty successful John Lester in his first couple of outings, but since then it's been really rough going for the veteran. Um, For me, I think one of the top storylines, obviously the injuries too, but, you know, we saw the Nationals offense finally get hot at the end of the in the end of the uh, uh, first half, even without Kyle Schwarber, they had a really good series in San Diego. Had a chance to win three out of four. Ended up splitting. They obviously got swept in San Francisco, um, but you know they their offense was playing really well for the first time uh, consistently for the first time that we've seen all season long. Even with Schwarber out, and this kind of ties into my second top storyline, can they continue to do that? Can guys like Josh Bell, Trey Turner, all-star, uh, Ryan Zimmerman when he's asked to play, can they pick up the slack of, of without Schwarber? And then I'm also now looking at Juan Soto. Can he discover rediscover that power that we has been missing all season long? He's only got... 11, 12 homers on the season. Can he get back into, you know, the 20, 25, closer to 30 range with a really strong second half? I think that's going to help this Nationals offense and obviously make up for the lack of power that they're going to be missing with Kyle Schwarber sidelined for who knows how long. Right, we're going to get to see if that home run derby tried, you know, fix yeah. a couple of things and Juan Soto's swing, if he can hit for more power in the second half. He can certainly catch up to what he's been able to do in other seasons if he just gets things going. And starting this second half at a good pace is going to be really important for the Nationals. They love to start slow. They love to start slow after breaks. Uh, so they need to get things going here. Um, and you mentioned some of those other guys that need to step up, like Josh Bell. Starlin Castro is another one that kind of got going towards the end of the yeah. first half. He needs to keep that going. Jan Gomes, too. That middle of the line up they started to to step up towards the end of the first half um, but they have to come out um, swinging especially if Juan Soto's still not going to be able to do what he's been able to do in previous years Um, and then you know back to the rotation we talked about John Lester I think Patrick Corbin's another Mm. guy that has to pick it up I mean his ERA is through the roof right now and those top five guys that are in a rotation that's supposed to be so elite have to pick it up because we know that this roster is based on that starting rotation um, and if they can't do it, they're not going to win. Yeah. Uh, d- d- well, to piggyback on Patrick, you know, looking back at uh, Mark Zuckerman's coverage on MassInSports.com, yesterday on Wednesday morning, he gave out grades, first half grades for each Nationals player, and and Patrick Corbin gets a D. And, and that is, you know, maybe even a little generous. He had that stretch, I think, in June where he pitched pretty well um, and looked good. But I, I, I think that, you know, he has just been, for Patrick Corbin's standards, Mediocre at best, and then at times terrible, uh, not being able to get too deep into games. And when you have only Max, sometimes Eric Fetty going five, six innings uh, plus, then that, that really hurts this bullpen. We talked about how strong this bullpen has been, but they're just kind of worn down and now injured. Hopefully they come back healthy in the second half. Um, and I also want to move on to, you know, a one player we didn't talk about for the offense that didn't come up, not surprisingly, though, is, is Victor Robles. Can he kind of get going at the plate? We've seen his on-base percentage be higher than we're used to seeing uh, this year, but can he 
do something else. Can he add to this? You know, I'm not saying he needs to go out and start slugging home runs, but can he get on base at even a higher clip? Can he, his average get up? Uh, can he steal some bags? Can he be more of a threat? Keep the defense the same. He's been elite out there, but I think he needs to start helping more offensively uh, to help pick up the slack of some, uh, some other guys and take some pressure off some other guys as well. Because a lot of days, Victor Robles really could make a difference in this lineup, as crazy as that is, no matter where he's hitting in the lineup. he We're constantly like, come on, Victor, come on, yeah. Victor. You know the abilities there. It's just him being able to hit at the big league level, and it just seems like he's been struggling. He needs to get on a base at a higher clip, and he could be a difference, believe it or not, um, in this lineup, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and looking all around the major leagues right now and, and the schedule, of course, they start with three week uh, three games against the Padres, who they just saw in San Diego. A very good team, but they just pro- proved that they can stay with them, the Nationals, that is. Um, so if they're able to win two out of three against the Padres this weekend. That'd be a great start. You talked about historically having slow starts. Under David Martinez, the Nationals actually have a much better second-half winning percentage than first half. Now, that is a little inflated by the historic run in 2019, but point still stands. Even last year in a bad 2020, they finished stronger than they started, um, and and that I don't know if that's an exact telling of how well this team will do in the second half, but they've all that to say, they've done it before, right? They are traditionally better in warmer weather later half of the season. And then you look at the rest of the schedule. They play the Marlins, the Orioles, and the Phillies, all teams that are struggling, and the Cubs to finish out the month. Teams that are struggling, teams that they've already beaten this year. Um, so they could get off to a hot start in the second half after the Padres series if they do well this weekend. And you know that they're capable of it. You right. Know, you know that That's the frustrating can, part. Right. You know that they can be nine games back in pull it together and put together a good stretch of games so they're capable of doing it it's just a matter of doing it but if there's any time uh it, it's the second half of the season for the nationals um and i think we've talked about it before but i think another thing that's going to be important is bullpen management especially when you have injured starting pitching your lineup can't really hit how davy martinez and we saw it in this last stretch of about 10 or a dozen games is the bullpen has had some collapses and cost them a few games. That first game of that Dodger series at home, the bullpen cost them, and I think the night after that as well. Uh, so how Davey Martinez is either forced or how he does manage the bullpen I think is going to be really important, um, and it's going to either expose their depth or they'll come up big. Yeah, he's been criticized for overusing guys, but I think that's a kind of a two-way street there because sometimes he doesn't have a choice. You know, I think the biggest obvious example is back in 2019 with Sean Doolittle at the beginning of the season. Take Daniel Hudson now this year. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Brad Handley a little bit. We saw him struggle in New York a couple times. Uh, Kyle Finnegan obviously went down with an injury. Uh, so that's been a criticism of Dave Martinez, but I think that sometimes he hasn't had a choice because – we talked about the starting pitching, not giving him enough length. And then also there's not really other guys that he can trust in, in high leverage situations, uh, especially when guys are down. That's the thing. If you only have two or three guys in your bullpen that you can really trust and you're right in a game and have the opportunity to win it, you're going to look really silly if you <laughs> say, well, he's pitched two days in a row. I can't really go to him. And then the bullpen ends up collapsing. Uh, so he's kind of, they force his hand in a lot of situations and you kind of feel bad for Davey Martinez, but he really doesn't have a choice when there's only two or three guys um, on in that bullpen during certain stretches of the season. So health, better offense, better pitching. Just, <laughs> Just play be better, better please. <laughs> <laughs> Just skate better. That's all the <laughs> Nationals need to do, and they'll be right back in it. They enter the second half, six games back from the Mets, only two games back of the Braves, which also kind of adding to the conversation, looking at the division, just because you're six games back with – 
uh, in the middle of July doesn't mean that you're completely out of it. Obviously, with the Braves, unfortunately, Ronald Acuna Jr. is out for the rest of the season with a torn ACL. That is, you know, terrible for the sport and terrible for the Braves. But, you know, do, do the Braves all of a sudden then become sellers at the trade deadline? And what happens with them over the next couple of weeks? Uh, the Phillies have had their share of struggles, though they finished pretty hot to end the first half. Uh, and the Mets, you know, they are the best team, but we've seen this team collapse before. So it's, it's not completely said and done just because you're six games back at the All-Star break. If the Nationals are the healthiest team in this division, I think they give the Mets a really good run for their money. If they continue to struggle, guys aren't performing well, and more guys go down with injuries, I think we're going to see them kind of end up where they are right now. I think that's a really good prediction. I mean, they couldn't have asked for more out of the rest of this division to put them in the best position that they could be at this point. I mean... They've had some really bad stretches, and they're right in it, realistically. Um, so everybody else has kind of been underwhelming, and the Nationals could be could really come on here. So how they start this second half is going to be important, especially as you get into talks about the trade deadline, what other teams are going to do, and then, of course, what the Nationals are going to do themselves. Do you have a trade deadline prediction already? We are, what, two weeks away, two weeks plus away? I don't have any, but all I know is all the talk's going to be about Max Scherzer. <laughs> yep, we're already getting asked for it. Uh, Gary Rosenthal saying trade Scherzer. Too soon to tell. I, I don't. Here's my bold prediction. Even if the Nationals are out of it and are quote-unquote uh, sellers, they will not trade Max Scherzer. I don't think I they will. I don't think they will. I don't think they will. Even if they're, I'm saying even if they're out of it. But even if they start selling off pieces, Max won't be one of them. I don't think they will, but then I think they're going to look back and it's going to be like, how could they not? I mean, they were... Did the same thing with Bryce something. Harper and that worked out. It did. You're right. But they at were least this get close something, to trading him, though. At least get something, trade him, and then you could end up getting him back and, you know, signing him for another contract. I don't know. I'm not but saying that's the right thing to do. I'm I just saying... I don't think I'm, that they will, but I think that... Yeah. Maybe if they're really out of it, they should really probably consider it. Oh, I think they will consider it, and they'll definitely have teams calling. But I, I, I just, I'm not saying it's also the right thing to do. I'm saying that I think this is what they will do. I think this is the mindset they'll have. Well, Mike Rizzo, they, because Mike Rizzo's not a quitter. Uh, he, he's not one to give up. Even we back in 2018, even when they were this close to trading Bryce Harper to the Astros, and they didn't pull the trigger, and then they ended up just trading. Daniel Murphy and who was it? Uh, um, the relief pitcher Matson in 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 uh, after the non waiver trade deadline. So in August, so they end up doing that as well. Uh, I I think there's that that's a track record right there. They'll they'll receive calls. This is assuming that they're out of it, by the way. Um, they'll receive calls, and he won't do it because he'll still have faith that they can turn it around in August. You know what's out of it though in this division, right? It, right. Six it, games. Exactly. Is it four or five? Is it? 10? True. It, you know. I think, well, and that's probably exactly that question just goes to show why they might not and why they probably won't. Um, and he certainly would get a lot of heat if he trades Max Scherzer. They start to win some games and they're still in it. And you just traded your best player. There's a lot of division games in the second half. I mean, they it's mostly – they've pretty much – they've after this Padres series, they've pretty much wrapped up their plan against the National League West. They've still got the Pirates and Reds and Brewers on the schedule. Um, um, that's the wraps up the NL Central. And then uh, one last series against the Rockies uh, in, uh, to close out the season in September. So it's pretty much NL East from here on out. So that, like we've always talked about, that gives you a really good chance to get back in it because you knock them down a peg and you increase a point in the standing. So uh, that's, that, that's their path. Over. right? Yep. That's their path. And, and obviously getting healthy and everything we talked about is also uh, a way to do that. Well, 
I think that's pretty much good, right? You're all set. You're all set. Busy week. Busy week. We're we're not. We didn't run out of energy. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Jennings brought the energy today. Uh, That's going to pretty much do it for this week's Mass and All Access podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the All Star Break festivities. Baseball gets back underway Friday night. The Nationals will take on the Padres on Mass and Two throughout the course of the weekend. Pre-game coverage starting at six thirty. Bob and Dan should be back with you with Justin for that Mass and Two. all across the weekend and they face the Marlins next week. Uh, give Amy Jennings a follow at Amy Jennings News on Twitter. Be sure to follow her with all the new Nationals packages and uh, performances that she's putting up across all social media feeds. You can also give at Mass and Nationals a follow on all social media accounts as well. And follow the Mass and All Access podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts, you can find the Mass and All Access podcast and tune into us every single week live on the Mass and Nationals Facebook page, YouTube channel, and on Twitter. I'm at Bob Bobby Unescore Blanco can give me a follow as well and check out my coverage on MassInSports.com. Big shout out to Brendan Mortensen and Paul Mancona for their help behind the scenes. You can check out them out if you want more baseball or Orioles coverage on the Mass and All Access podcast, Orioles side, uh, to, to check out them if you, uh, if you so choose. Thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy the week. Baseball is back starting tomorrow. We'll see you then.